what's up out there everybody welcome back to ath legal ease you're tuned in with your host mark houston the second esquire episode seven now we usually record on sundays but i had to extend that deadline a little bit due to all the news that broke this past weekend so here we are without further ado let's get right into it today is june 8th 2020 as a reminder no this isn't your favorite argumentative sportscast or gossip site this is a legal business perspective coupled with a true love of sport dictated to the culture for the culture by a sports attorney and as a general disclaimer the information provided on this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice Instead, all information, content, and materials available on this podcast are for general informational purposes only. Formalities done. Heat check time. Heat check one, two. So for this episode, I'm wearing the Air Jordan Future Premium Easter. Now we're going to do something a little bit different since I had to extend the deadline. We're going to cover two days, the 7th and 8th. So on this day in sports, June 7th, 1892, John J. Doyle of the Cleveland Spiders is the first to pinch hit in a baseball game. In 1936, the New York Yankees beat the Cleveland Indians 5-4 in 16 innings. This was the longest game without a strikeout. In 1989, Wayne Gretzky wins his ninth NHL Hart Trophy, which is the MVP trophy, in 10 years. In June 8th, on June 8th, 1966, the NFL and the AFL announced plans to become the NFC and the AFC beginning in 1970. In 1990, the 1990 FIFA World Cup begins in Italy. In 1996, Steffi Graf defeats Arenza Sanchez Vicario in the longest ever women's final at the French Open to win her 19th Grand Slam title. And of course, in 2002, Serena Williams defeats her sister Venus Venus Williams in straight sets to win the French Open. This week's shout-out goes to Natasha Cloud, WNBA player, Washington Mystics player, champion, who became the first female to sign an endorsement deal with the Converse brand. That's huge. Of course, in the return to sports, this past weekend we saw NASCAR return at the Atlanta Speedway. We saw UFC return with UFC 250, which was froth with a bunch of knockouts. Check out that content. Then, of course, the Bundesliga return. In the Bundesliga this week, we saw several teams take a knee to support the Black Lives Matter movement, which has taken the world by storm. That brings us to today's game plan. Now, today's episode, entitled the Nego- Negotiating the Return, we'll be talking about the various negotiations the major sports leagues in the U.S. have undergone uh, in order to plan their return. Uh, today we'll talk about what the NBA is doing to return, what the MLB is doing to return, what MLS has done to return. After that, we'll get into some hot stories and, of course, some case law. So stick with us. We've got a lot to cover today. So in negotiating the return to sports, the NBA overcame a big hurdle last week. And on Thursday, June 4th, the NBA Board of Directors voted to approve a 22-team format to, res- to restart the 2019-2020 season. Uh, this is set to take place July 31st in Orlando, Florida, at the Wide World of Disney. Now, according to ESPN, the vote wasn't unanimous, uh, but was passed nonetheless in a 29-to-1 vote with the Portland Trailblazers being the only dissenters against the proposal. 
since Thursday, the NBA PA player representatives have approved the plan. Uh, they presented it to the other players. Um, of course, nothing in the NBA Constitution manda mandates a vote on their behalf, so this was more of a formality. Uh, but to quote Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, the board's approval of the restart format is a necessary step towards resuming the NBA season. Now, of course, the NBA resuming its season, all of this is going to be contingent on an agreement with the Disney company to use the Walt Disney Resort for all games. Uh, it's going to, NBA is going to use all its facilities for games, practices, and housing. So there's a lot that still has to be hashed out before we really get a return. So a big component that still needs to be negotiated, though, is player compensation. Because back in 2020, April of 2020, excuse me, the NBA and the NBA PA agreed to a plan in which the NBA would withhold approximately 25% of player paychecks, which really lays the groundwork for a cancellation of the NBA season under the CBA's force majeure clause, which I've discussed in earlier episodes. So essentially, right now, NBA is withholding about 1% of every player's game checks in an escrow account, and under the arrangement, if all games are played, the players will receive a refund of the full payment of their of the funds withheld. If only some games are played, then only partial payment to the players commiserate to the games played. And if there are no games played, there would be no payment. However, we have this deal to restart the season um, in which under the plan, there would be 13 Western Conference teams and nine Eastern Conference teams that would participate in an eight-game regular season, quote, seeding arrangement, uh, which also includes a possible play-in tournament for the eighth seeds. So seems like a lot of games will be played. So how does the NBA CBA fit into all of this? Well, here... The NBA and the NBA M MBPA is going to have to collectively bargain what are essentially called transition rules. And this is because the current CBA calls for a 51-49 split of basketball-related income, or BRI, between the players and the teams. However, the current rules for the CBA really isn't set up to handle such an extreme drop in revenue that the NBA is going to see, of course, with canceling majority of the season and also uh, having to play these games on a neutral site uh, with no fans. So there will be some negotiations uh, coming soon um, and some other things that are going to have to be hashed out are what the economics of the NBA are going to look like, what the future salary cap dates and deadlines are going to be, and what exactly the player salary reductions are going to look at look like uh, moving forward. So we'll keep an eye on that and keep you updated. That then moves us to another mess that's been caused by the COVID-19 situation uh, involving another major U.S. league, which is MLB. Or Major League Baseball. So here the two sides have yet to come to an agreement as to how to restart the season. There have been some offers, counter offers. There have been some rejections as well as to how the MLB is going to move forward. Um, so I'll give you a bit of history so far and bring you up current as to where we are with the MLB negotiations. So, so far, essentially the MLB players have agreed to prorate their salaries based on the number of games played. But Major League Baseball, the league, is looking for even more concessions. 
at the real heart of all of this is players, MLB players are upset at the MLB's almost repeated offer to only play, only pay approximately 33% of the full salaries at a prorated rate with their various proposals. So what's happened so far is the MLB has proposed an 82-game season with a sliding scale with approximately 33% salary paid. The MLB has also proposed a 50-game season with a prorated salary at approximately 33%. And just recently, the MLB has proposed a 76-game regular season with a 75% prorated pay, which really amounts to 33% of the players' full salaries. Um, some of the terms that have already been agreed to, which the two sides really are in agreement on, are these points here. Larger rosters, which could potentially include 30, 30 players on an active roster with about 20 player taxi squads. Uh, extensive health and safety protocols for players and team personnel. Universal designated hitter to protect pitchers. And also a regional schedule to reduce travel. Uh, lastly would be expanded playoffs. So potentially 14 total teams make it to the, to the postseason this year. Now those are things we do agree, they do agree on, but how do we get here and why is it taking so long? Well, to give a brief history, the season was put on hold due to the COVID-19 virus. Uh, spring training was halted in its tracks. Um, but negotiations really didn't begin to bring the season back until around May 11th. So on that date, uh, NBA owners reached an agreement prior to negotiations, official negotiations with the unions that the MLB plan to restart would include an 82-game season, would have an expanded roster, expanded postseason that would include 14 games, and the plan also called for a 50-50 revenue split between the owners and the players. And some of the, those are some of the things that I initially mentioned, some of the terms that are already agreed upon. So on May 14th, the players almost universally kind of agree on the need for a designated hitter. Um, and this is in efforts to protect pitchers who would obviously be relieved of their at-bats and running, which would probably help the teams out in the long run. So then on May 18th, MLB owners claimed that they'll lose about 640000 per game without fans during an 82-game season. Now, these numbers weren't verified. Um, however, baseball owners are letting players know that money's going to be short. May 20th, the MLB finally pre presents a formal pr proposal to the players' union. So under this formal, uh, formal economic plan, the MLB details the financial losses that they will be subject to during the 2020 season and ultimately claim that they'll lose roughly $4 billion without fans in attendance if the players decline to accept more salary reduction. The next day, the MLBPA responds to the league's 67-page safety protocol, which of course was the next step in the negotiating process. Uh, however, the league or the union, players union, uh, responded with a counterproposal 
which included some more concerns on player health and safety. So they focused on testing frequency, protections for high-risk players and their families, and more sanitation protocols. On May 26, MLB owners make a financial proposal in which the MLBPA was disappointed in. So under this financial proposal, the highest paid players would receive approximately less than 40% of their full season salaries, while players making the league minimum might get all or most of their prorated salary. And this, of course, will be based on the number of games in the 2020 schedule. So I have some figures here. Um, a player who was making approximately 563000 a year under this proposal would have made 262000 A player making $1 million would make 434000 A player making $2 million would make 736000 $5 million under the proposal would make $1.64 million. A player making $10 million would make $2.95 million. A player making $15 million would make $4.95 0.05 million. A player making 20 million would recruit about 5 5.15 million. A player making 25 million would make approximately 6 million, 6.05 million. A player making 30 million would get 6.95 million. And a player making 35 million for a full year, full season would get, under this proposal, $7.84 million. Now, you can see those are huge, huge cuts to player salary. So that was based on the full MLB season, all games considered. However, this is what it would look like under an 82 prorated salary. So for a player receiving 563000 a year, under the prorated salary, they receive 285000 Player receiving $1 million will receive 506000 Player receiving $2 million will receive $1.01 million. Player receiving $5 million would receive $2.53 million. Player receiving $10 million would receive $5.06 million. A player receiving $15 million would receive $7.59 million. A player receiving $20 million would receive $10.1 million. A player receiving $25 million would receive $12.7 million. A player receiving $30 million would receive $15.2 million. And a player receiving $35 million will receive 17.7 million, which you can see obviously is way, way more than what the proposed salary reduction would compensate the players for. It's obviously a huge cut, but it's a lot more than a proposal. So what then happens on May 27th, players start speaking out. So Matt Scherzer plays for the Nationals. He tweets that the players have no reason to engage with the MLB in any further compensation reductions. Now this position, of course, reflects the NBA PA's position that negotiations for compensation was really already settled when the players agreed that they would take prorated salaries back in March and April. So then May 29th, the MLBPA still sits back and awaits some evidence of the MLB's financial claims that they lose up to $4 billion this year. Um, because of course, the MLB's economic proposal was seeking an additional pay cut 
in the amount of about 800 million to quote that they thought was necessary to make the games economically feasible without fans in attendance. So just a few days later, on May 31st, the MLBPA proposes a 114-game season with no additional pay cuts, which included some other key provisions. This included an opt-out right for each player. Uh, This gives the players the ability to opt out of participating in the 2020 season and also a salary deferral plan just in case the postseason is canceled or shortened due to another wave of COVID-19, which are reasonable, you would think. The MLB, the MLBA, excuse me, the MLBPA's proposal also asked for two years of extended playoffs and also asked for players to receive approximately $100 million in advance during spring training. So essentially this would be spring training 2.0. They would get paid up front once they return. So on June 3rd, the MLB rejects the MLBA, MLBPA's proposal and refuses to make a counteroffer. On June 4th, players again with a unified front, which we haven't seen in quite some time, the players vehemently reject and resoundingly reject additional pay cuts. So just today, the MLB, the MLB proposes made another proposal after they said they won't make a counteroffer. Their proposal now is a 76-game season. However, they still want more pay cuts. And now they've attached a deadline in which the Players Association needs to respond by this coming Wednesday. And, of course, we know deadlines spur action, but... We'll see what happens here. So under this current proposal, 76-game season, the league believes they will be able to compensate players with about $1,431,716,000 in potential compensation for players. So... That's about 75% of the prorated salary uh, of, of players. Um, under this current proposal, there will be up to eight playoffs team, eight playoff teams per league. Um, there will be no qualifying offer for 2020. So teams that lose free agents. Uh, they'll receive a draft pick for players uh, who signed multi-year deals at about $35 million or one-year deals at about $17.8 million. And players that, players that sign free agents do not lose draft picks. So, of course, there'll be another spring training before the season starts. So spring training 2.0 will last about 21 days or so. The season will start around July 10th and around September 27th. Um, let's see so the different payments that get us to that 1.4 billion dollar uh, total compensation for players that I just discussed so about 50% of the prorated salaries over the 76 games will amount to 954 million 718,000 to payment of players if the postseason happens amounts to about $393 million and bonus pool for postseason for the various teams to split is about $50 million so under under this proposal, the they carve out a 
um, high risk individual clause um, in which these players that are deemed high risk can opt out of the 2020 season and retain their salaries their salaries uh, in service time. But the players that are not deemed high risk will receive neither a salary or service. So here we have to look to the MLBPA COVID-19 manual to determine what exactly an high-risk individual is. So according to that manual, some individuals may be more likely to suffer severe illness as a result of COVID-19 than others. Individuals who by virtue of their age or medical history are, uh, are at a materially higher risk of complications. So those individuals can opt out. Um, another component of the MLB's recent proposal uh, has to go goes towards player safety um, and health. So here, the MLB, just like a few other uh, leagues, and uh, one that I've discussed recently, uh, is UFC uses has been using a waiver. Uh, or an assumption of risk agreement uh, due to COVID-19 concerns. Uh, the MLB has adopted a similar agreement, which they call an acknowledgement of risk, in which the operations manual will include a revision that will include an acknowledgement of risk form or agreement that players will have to sign before agreeing to play this season. So again, more negotiations for the return of, a, of another league. We'll see how that all plays out. That then brings us to our third example, which is Major League Soccer, which just this past week also came up with an agreement on how to return. So on Wednesday, June 3rd, uh, Commissioner MLS Commissioner Don Garber revealed that MLS will take about a $1 billion revenue hit because of the coronavirus pandemic. And that because of this, this forced and, quote, unimaginably difficult, quote, unquote, negotiation with the player union, but it ultimately resulted in a revised collective bargaining agreement. So, Last week, the ML, the players union, the MLS player, Players Association, MLSPA, was faced with a noon Eastern Wednesday deadline, which was imposed by the league, uh, and also threats of a lockout. However, the Players Association and the MLB were able to agree on a new collective bargaining agreement. So this extended collective bargaining agreement has is will be in effect until 2025 and it also set out a roadmap to how the MLS can return to the pitch later this summer so this return plan uh, will allow the MLS to plan a tournament which will be held at the Disney Wide World of Sports in Orlando, which will include all 26 teams in a playoff-style bracket um, in which $1 million and championship trophy is on the line. But as I stated, this wasn't an easy negotiation to get both sides on the same page. Um, and there were two major hurdles that the league and the MLBA had the ML sorry the MLSPA had to overcome in order to make this happen. So one was the MLS owners attempt to insert a force majeure clause uh, that will allow the league to essentially to essentially rip up the collective bargaining agreement uh, and rule out the season uh, if uh, certain certain MLS markets 
uh, continue to experience um, an attendance decline. So if fans aren't able to return to watch some of these games, uh, this force majeure clause uh, leans a little bit towards the owners and allows them uh, to not fulfill their contractual obligations uh, due to declined attendance. The other big hurdle uh, was a disagreement over the distribution of revenue, which is expected uh, to start with a new TV deal that starts in 2023. So at issue were how the league and the players association were going to divvy up that revenue. So to give a little history on this uh, negotiation, Back in February 2020, the league and the MLSPA agreed in terms to a new collective bargaining agreement. Uh, both sides at that time characterized the tentative agreement as a win-win. Now, this is very different from the negotiation back in 2015, where, in which a very contentious negotiation uh, ensued and the assistance of a mediator uh, was necessary for the two sides to make an agreement. And this agreement, uh, they made the agreement just days before the start of the, of, of the season. So they were close to another lockout back in 2015. So in 2015, the league unilaterally imposed new salary restrictions uh, for that collective bargaining agreement and added in uh, a few different clauses. Uh, one specifically that offended a lot of players was the targeted allocation money, or the TAM. So what's different between, different between that collective bargaining agreement and this one is now there are two main salary buckets uh, for MLS players to be compensated under. So you have the guaranteed spend uh, and the discretionary spend. So this changes how players can be paid a little bit more um, and allows players to compete for a greater share of the salary uh, allocation uh, that was previously saved and allocated to TAM players. So we have that change. Another big change is that we have what are now, for players that are at the bottom of the pay scale, uh, there's an existence of what they call the senior minimum and the reserve minimum contracts. Uh, those players um, saw an increase in wages uh, in which the senior minimum contracts will rise from about 70000 in 2019 to about 109000 in 2024, and the reserve minimum contracts will increase from $56 million to about $85 million, um, in those same years. Also, the senior minimum players will be eligible for performance-based bonuses, which are capped at about 35000 which they had not had access to before. So, under this agreement, um, the MLS will no longer be able to impose certain salary uh, mechanisms or schemes like they imposed in 2015 with the TAM unilaterally. And first, they have to, uh, instead, now they must have to, they must consult with the Players Association um, and come to an agreement prior to instituting something like that, which is huge for the players. Um, ultimately, or additionally, the Players Association also received guarantees from the league that it will start adding additional money uh, to the salary budget um, based on uh, new media rights deals which will see a huge increase, um, will, of course, pay the way uh, to see that players start to benefit from the growth that MLS is starting to see. So some of the main changes uh, for the 2020 season are that the players have agreed to a 5% pay reduction for the 2020 season in exchange for an extra year added to the collective bargaining agreement. So 
in, in agreeing to take a 5% salary uh, reduction, the CBA that was reached will extend an extra year. Um, moreover, um, the league was able to uh, recover some of the media rights revenue that was promised to the players. So originally the players uh, were to receive about 20% of the money generated um, in the new broadcast deals. Um, here there was an agreement in which the players will, uh, the totals will drop from 25% to about 12.5% um, in the 2023 year and then return back to 25% in the 24-25 year. So here you can see how MLS was willing to concede a little bit uh, to get their players back on the field. The players feel as though this was a win-win and that they were able to achieve some of the things that they were not able to achieve uh, back in the 2020, or sorry, the 2015 uh, collective bargaining agreement in which they felt as though that was a bad deal for them. So if you contrast all three of these stories that I've sort of talked about, you see how the NBA has been working together with its players, Players Association, to come up with an agreement that they can all agree on, which has paved the way for a tentative return. Uh, the MLB, which is claiming they're going to lose forty, uh, excuse me, four billion uh, since fans can't attend these games, uh, you know, are asking for more and more pay cuts. Um, which obviously has frustrated the players, um, leading to almost an impasse and potentially a lockout uh, coming pretty soon. And then you have the Major League Soccer uh, versus the MLSPA, which again have come up and agreed to, uh, you know, concede a little bit on each side in order to bring sports back. So kudos to those guys. It's really cool to see everyone sort of work together to to come back. Hopefully, we can get baseball, um, basketball, and soccer back uh, pretty soon this season or later this summer. That now brings us to our hot stories topic. So I have several stories uh, that sort of all relate to what we've seen with the recent protests uh, from that have arisen from the George Floyd situation. Um, I have four stories here to uh, sort of expound upon um, that all relate to that. So the first deals with one of the major uh, providers of sports apparel, Adidas. So Adidas um, has been accused of complacency uh, on racism by one of its designers. So a black Adidas designer has called on the company to apologize for its complacency on racism. And this comes after Adidas posted a tweet, uh, you know, with a black background with racism crossed out. Uh, on June 3rd, uh, the, the designer sent a letter to Adidas's leadership um, that she shared with various media outlets um, in which she labeled Adidas's response as shameful and called out the company's consistent complacency in taking active, active steps against, racist, against a racist work environment. So the letter sent to Adidas leadership described an atmosphere in which black employees were afraid to speak out and the fact that several complaints were often disregarded, uh, especially in recent years by Adidas North America. Now, of course, Adidas has been trying to move into the lifestyle space, the, the sports space, and they've been using, the, I guess, the alternative sports space. Uh, they're really, you know, a soccer company, and they're from Germany, um, if anyone didn't know, but 
as of recent, they've had some campaigns in which they, they've been utilizing a lot of black athletes and celebrities, uh, such as Kanye West, um, NBA player James Harden, Beyonce, and a few others to market and sell to black customers in this country. So, upon receiving the letter, Adidas companies, or Adidas leadership, uh, states, quote, we're listening, we recognize that we have not done enough, and we are dedicated to doing more. Uh, moreover, uh, the company said in response, we are close to finalizing our commitments to ensure our people, most importantly our black employees, are heard, supported, and involved in solutions. Uh, lastly, they stated, we will hold ourselves accountable for change. We firmly believe that together is the only way to move forward. So it seems Adidas has taken these concerns serious and will take necessary steps to start addressing uh, the inequalities. So we'll see. Another interesting story, um, just today, CrossFit, I'm sure everyone's aware of, sort of a uh, fitness initiative, uh, sort of platform brand that's really sort of taken off, uh, you know, across the United States and across the world. Well, recently, CrossFit has started losing sponsorship and partner deals due to a tweet sent out by its CEO. So, in response to a post stating that racism is a pandemic, CrossFit CEO tweeted Floyd 19. Now, this is a reference to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, but also a reference to uh, the death of George Floyd at the hands of police in Minnesota. Now, because of this, one of its main partners, Reebok, has decided to end its partnership with, with CrossFit after the insensitive statements. Now, the company says it will fulfill its contractual obligation for the rest of the 2020 year, but will then cut ties with the company at the end of the contract term this year. Our next story is involved in soccer. So the USSF, or the United States Soccer Federation, its board of directors is considering repealing its anthem policy, which requires players to stand during the national anthem. Now, this policy, specifically 604-1, states... All persons representing a Federation national team shall stand respectfully during the playing of national anthems at any event in which the Federation is represented. So on Monday, today, the U.S. women's team issued a statement calling for the rule to be repealed. The statement in part states, quote, we believe the Federation should immediately repeal the anthem policy, publish a statement acknowledging the policy was wrong when it was adopted, and issue an apology to our black players and supporters. Further, we believe the Federation should lay out its plans on how it will now support the message and movement that it tried to silence four years ago. Until USSF does so, the mere existence of the policy will continue to perpetuate the misconceptions and fear that clouded the true meaning and significance of Colin Kaepernick Megan Rapinio, and other athletes taking a knee that black people in America have not been and continue not be afforded the same liberties and freedoms as white people and that police brutality and systemic racism exists in this country. Moreover, this is everybody's responsibility, including this union and its members. We could and should have done more in the past. We are committed to rising up against racist, hateful, and unjust acts to affect change. Black Lives Matter. Unquote. Now, the board will probably take a formal vote this Friday, so we'll see if that policy is overturned. That now brings us to where the symbolic protest 
of taking a knee really arose with Colin Kaepernick. So just this past week, the NFL and its commissioner, Roger Goodell, apologized for not listening to NFL players earlier. So in its statement, which was read by Roger Goodell, the NFL states, we, the NFL, condemn racism and systemic oppression of black people. We, the NFL, admit we were wrong for not listening to NFL players earlier and encourage all to speak out and peacefully protest. We, the NFL, believe that black lives matter. Unquote. Now this apology or statement was provoked by a video, was allegedly provoked by a video that was organized by NFL wide receiver Michael Thomas and an NFL social media employee. Now this video, which w- which went viral, uh, was entitled, What If I Was George Floyd? And it included multiple cameos by very prominent NFL players. And within 24 hours of this video going viral, the NFL spoke out uh, and issued its statement. There, of course, was no mention of Colin Kaepernick. And as of recent, it's been leaked that the NFL will move forward with not punishing players for their symbolic protests of taking a knee during the anthem. Several players have already agreed and stated that they will be taking a knee. Uh, One of those prominent players is Adrian Peterson. So AP using his platform, all these players using their platforms to bring about some change. And we're starting to see those with a lot of the policies um, and protocol uh, in these various leagues being changed. That now moves us to our last segment today, which is case law. Now, this even revolves around uh, the pandemic. It seems we can't escape it uh, right now in sports. But two very interesting cases uh, involving unpaid rent um, in the various sports. So, uh, the first is NBA Media Ventures has been sued for $1.25 million in unpaid rent for its Fifth Avenue store in New York. Um, This case, which was filed in U.S. District Court uh, in New York uh, by a plaintiff uh, who's named uh, 535-545-FEE, LLC, um, who, of course, leased the retail space to NBA Media Ventures, LLC, which has been there since November of 2014. Now, the rent at the store or that location, the retail space, is about $7.5 million per year or approximately $625,000. Yeah, $625,000 per month. Um, and the defendant, NBA Media Ventures, has not paid rent for April and May. Now, of course, these were the months in which the store was closed due to the pandemic. But you got to pay to play. So the suit is seeking approximately $1.2 million in damages and approximately 20000 in legal fees. So we'll see how that pans out. I'll keep you posted. The very last case for today uh, has to do with a lawsuit against Mets pitcher Noah Syndergaard over unpaid rent. So he was named as a defendant in a lawsuit filed by the landlord of an apartment um, in which he was renting in Tribeca in Manhattan. Uh, Now he entered into an agreement to lease the property um, from March of this year through November, which which would have been baseball season. Um, So here... The landlord is seeking damages in excess of $250,000. What's interesting is he rented the property before the coronavirus epidemic took hold um, and all sports were put on a hiatus. So because of this, he never even moved into the property. So he's being charged or he's being sued for unpaid rent uh, for, for a place that he's never even set foot in. So... It's interesting what has occurred um, 
because he was even going to be out for this season. Uh, so he tore his, his UCL in March um, and underwent Tommy John surgery. So he was already going to be out for the 2020 season um, and probably wasn't going to be able to return until, uh, you know, sometime within the 2021 season. Um, so he wasn't going to play. He hadn't even stepped foot in the country uh, or e even in that apartment um, to – uh, to live there nonetheless he's still being sued so here's his quote uh, he tweeted out his response uh, upon learning of about the proceedings against him he stated quote so let me get this straight I fairly and in good faith offered to pay two months rent over fifty thousand dollars to a landlord for a place I was never going to step foot in due to a global pandemic that took a severe toll upon the residents of NYC gave timely notice to attempt to try and re-rent while getting TJ and now Tom, uh, TJ is Tommy John and now living in Florida for rehab and a landlord tries to extort me for 250000 while leaking the story to the media and I'm the bad guy? Yeah, okay. See you in court, pal. Unquote. So I guess we will see you in court. Um, we'll see how that all plays out. Um, that should be interesting, so I'll, I'll definitely keep you posted on it. But again, um, that's all our time. So thanks for tuning in. I uh, hope this uh, shed a, a little bit of light on some of the negotiations um, to the return of sports. Uh, you can see the three uh, contrasting points of views, uh, the varying negotiating points, how the leagues and the unions sort of operate, cooperate, or refuse to cooperate um, in these negotiations. So that's all we have today. It's been fun. We'll catch you next time. Be sure to subscribe. Be sure to like. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Instagram and Twitter. Uh, and shoot us an email if you have any questions. Catch you next time.